0: Hey, everybody. Are you ready? Here comes Season 4, Episode 1, COVID's Effects on Healthcare, featuring Caroline, Macy, and Kimberly from the Class of 2021. Without further ado, let's get started, and I hope you enjoy.
1: Hi, listeners, and welcome to one of the podcasts from the TCC Surgical Tech Class of 2021. We are so glad you guys are tuning in today. This episode is brought to you by Kimberly, Macy, and I, Caroline. We are planning on graduating in May, but first, we wanted to share with you some different topics related to COVID-19 because we all know that COVID has affected each and every one of our professional and personal lives. I will begin this podcast by sharing on lung transplants for patients with severe COVID-19. Macy will then speak next by interviewing Brandy Valentino, who is a nurse practitioner and midwife. Last but not least will be Kimberly, sharing an interview with two recent graduates who are employed at local hospitals here in Fort Worth, Texas. Let's jump on in. There are probably a lot of questions surrounding organ transplants because of the surgical complexity, I want to provide you with some background information before I tell you a story of a woman with severe COVID-19 whose only option was a double lung transplant to survive. To give you a price range on organ transplants, a heart would cost over $1 million, while a pancreas would cost $350,000. In the case of one single lung transplant, the patient would be billed for approximately $860,000. According to the National Foundation for Transplants, a patient must show proof of funding for 20% of the cost of the transplant surgery, even if their insurance will have them pay less. 20% of the $860,000 is about $170,000, which is still a pretty penny. However, patients have to think long-term. They need even more money for maintenance of the new organ after surgery, surgery excuse me. in fact, Patients can be denied the organ despite being matched with a donor if they can't afford the financial cost. Let's talk about matching. Successful organ transplants are only possible through blood type matching and HLA typing, which stands for Human Leukocyte Antigen. There are four different blood types, O, A, B, and AB. The blood type of the donor must match the recipient or else their body will attack and reject the organ. HLA typing deals with different antigens on cells. Antigens are proteins that live on cells in the human body. To some, ideal candidates would involve zero matching antigens between the donor and recipient. Both of these tests ensure that the new organ will be accepted by the recipient's body. If not, organ failure will occur. Moving on, donor organs most commonly come from people who have recently died but living donors are also an option for some organs. According to the American Lung Association, some transplant centers are willing to remove a lobe or portion of each lung and give it to pediatric patients who may not survive the long wait for a complete transplant. If the donor is deceased, a double lung or single lung transplant is an obtainable option. The lungs are viable outside a body for 4-6 to hours while they are on ice and connected to a machine for preservation. You may be asking yourself at this point how lungs get so bad that they need to be replaced. Sure, smoking tobacco ruins your lungs, but the COVID-19 virus can present as a non-resolving, irreversible disease. So bad that some patients experience acute respiratory distress syndrome, fibrotic lung disease, and severe respiratory failure. All of the above have the potential to require ventilator support. Even after the virus has passed, breathing difficulties may take months to improve. Many individuals even have other pre-existing medical conditions that can make recovery a slower process. There are many considerations when assessing a patient with severe COVID-19 for potential candidacy for a lung transplant. The Lancet for Respiratory Medicine is a medical journal where I have researched into these considerations and I would like to share five of them with you. One, the patient must have a recent negative COVID test. Two, the candidate should be younger than 65 years old. There there has been research to prove poor outcomes for older patients that go from a ventilator to lung transplantation. Three, there should be radiological evidence of irreversible lung disease such as fibrosis. Four, The patient should be able to participate in physical rehabilitation while on the transplant list. Collected data has shown improved outcomes for such patients. And five, the patient should be awake and able to discuss the benefits, risks, and complications of lung transplantation. The last one may seem obvious, but imagine not giving direct consent to the procedure and finally waking up after being on a ventilator for weeks and having been through a 10-hour surgery to a whole different quality of life that revolves around immunosuppression. Some would say that can be psychologically traumatic. Now that you know more about lung transplants, let's talk about that story now. The Northwestern Memorial Hospital posted an article describing the first double lung transplant for a patient whose lungs were severely damaged by the COVID-19 virus. The woman was Hispanic, healthy, and in her 20s working in Chicago when she tested positive. Her condition quickly worsened and for six weeks she was on life support. Her lungs had suffered irreversible damage from the virus, so the lung transplant team decided to put her on the waiting list in an attempt to save her life. The critical care specialist in Northwestern Memorial mentions that she was the sickest person in the COVID ICU unit and possibly the entire hospital. There were several times the healthcare team had to react quickly to her dropping oxygen levels to make sure her other organs were healthy enough to support the transplant. Within 48 hours of the woman being on the waiting list, they found her a match, prepped her for surgery, and completed the procedure successfully. The surgical care team reported that her lungs were completely plastered to the tissue around them, the heart, chest wall, and diaphragm. The mystery remains as to why a healthy woman in her 20s developed into such a severe case. She is now on a road to a full recovery despite the challenges of immunosuppression. Thank you so much for listening. Next up is Macy interviewing nurse practitioner and midwife, Brandy Valentino.
2: Thanks Caroline for the great information on lung transplants for COVID patients. I'm here with my mom, uh, Brandy Valentino, nurse practitioner and midwife for a doctor's office and a hospital. And if you would just let us know who you are.
3: Uh, Yes, my name is Brandy Valentino. I, like Macy said, I am a women's health nurse practitioner. Um, I have also a dual certification, so I'm a certified nurse midwife. And I do a combination of work between um, just a basic clinic where um, women come for care and hospital where patients are undergoing different treatments or surgeries. Well, I have a couple of questions for you, um, or a few questions, I should say. Being
2: at the office and the hospital has co- how has COVID affected mothers
3: that you see every day? So. COVID definitely has had a great impact on all of us, I think. Um, but mothers definitely have had have been very affected. Um, I think pregnancy in general for most people or most women um, is a time to share, a time to bond and to have your family kind of be at your side. And with COVID um, and the limitations in visitor policies and changes, um, it's taken all of that away and it's made much more of a, a I guess, virtual, where families are connected through their phones and videos more so now than they ever have been before. Mm.
2: What was the biggest thing you saw in the office and the hospital that has drastically impacted at the beginning of the pandemic but has gotten somewhat better now that we're almost a year in?
3: Um, I think in the beginning, you know, there was such a a resistance to all the different policies. You know, some patients were very um, kind and, and understanding. Other patients were just angry about the visitor policy, the mask policy, the checking your temperature policy. Like, it was just really, really challenging overall. Um, Trying to get the word out um, was really hard. You know, when you have a clinic full of, you know, 50 or 60 patients coming in for the various providers, trying to make sure they all understood what needed to happen, you know, that was a challenge. Um, Since then, you know, this has been going on for a year now, and people just kind of know. They know not to bring visitors. They know to wear their mask. They know they get their temperature checked. And so everything just kind of a lot smoother, easier, easier. Um, nobody likes it, but we all just kind of do it and move on. So it's kind of just been uh, another thing to add to everyday mm-hmm. life. Kind of exactly. like taking your phone or your keys with you to the car. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The other kind of piece of that I think is in the beginning, we all thought it was going to end quickly. you know. So it's like, why do we have to do all of this? And, and when do we get to stop? And now it's like, there doesn't really, it just, everyone just kind of does it now. And it's just, you know, not quite as big of a deal anymore. How has your workload or hours been affected
2: by COVID versus before?
3: Um, I think the biggest part, again, just like flows back into like getting the word out Um, that, you know, we would have to come in a little bit earlier um, to make sure all the patients were contacted with scheduling changes. Um, In the beginning, we had to just shut the office down. So we changed everything over to virtual appointments. Um, which was challenging to you know, actually do the appointment. Um, we weren't quite set up for that, um, so we had to make that happen. Um, now it's like, okay, I need to do a virtual appointment. Everybody just knows how to do it, and it just works out. Um, so again, that kind of flows back to what you asked me before. You know, It just has evolved into kind of a way of life. As far as hours go, not much different um, in terms of hours, not too much. Um, in terms of workload, just the addition of the virtual appointments, but they just incorporate into a basic schedule anyway.
2: To what lengths do you have to go through to ensure patient safety in the hospital and in the office?
3: Oh, I think every office, every clinic, every hospital, I think that that patient safety is always of utmost importance. I mean, I think it's pretty much ranks almost like the highest thing that there is and so every single thing we can do to protect not only the patients that are coming into our office but our staff members the people family and friends that we work with Um, we want to do every single thing that we can and usually following guidelines like what the cdc posts out is kind of how we gather our information and then meet together as a group to figure out what policies can we um, implement to help keep everyone safe What are the
2: policies for family members to visit their loved ones in both the hospital and the clinic? I know earlier you said it's Mm -hmm. kind of all virtual, but how is it now that we're about a year in?
3: Honestly, I can't do all of it virtual just because of the... Just the type of work that I do, seeing women and their, you know, if you have a problem, some things I can do online. Sometimes I actually need to see you and touch you and, you know, send off different um, things. So um, as far as visitors go, for the most part, we're just really, really limiting. Um, we allow a visitor to come in um, on a, like an anatomy sonogram, um, just because that's kind of a really special moment, a very first prenatal visit. Um, because that's a really special moment Um, in the office. That's kind of about it as far as visitors go. Um, And we think that really helps to incorporate, you know, fathers or mothers, uh, you know, mothers of mothers, um, into those really pivotal moments of prenatal care, um, but also to keep all the patients who are not at that point from being exposed to lots and lots of people. Um, As far as the hospital goes, I think they're, you know, in the women's services, allowing everyone to have one support person, as long as that person isn't sick or ill or been recently exposed. Um, and then there's certain, in labor, labor and delivery, there's certain um, um, care providers that are beneficial to patients, like doulas or breastfeeding support. So um, hospitals have over the year allowed or began to allow back um support personnel like that as long as they are legitimate there's they're hired staff members of that patient they have a certificate um, then they're able to come in so um, definitely not as many people around anymore um, but hopefully over time we're going to start to be letting people back in soon
2: well that's awesome to know I appreciate uh, you taking your time out of your day and your week right now with all your patients to get to talk to me yeah sure no problem now, I'm going to pass it on to Kimberly, who's going to talk a little bit with our previous CST program students who've been out for a year now. Um, all right, Kim, off to you.
4: All right, here we go. Okay, so um, if you guys want to go ahead and introduce yourselves, um, Carla, if you want to go first. Okay, um, so... Yeah.
5: My name is Carla Ortiz, Um, I do not have a specialty, I'm 11 to 11, so I do a little bit of everything, and um, I don't have like a specific reason, I decided to become a CST, Um, I just looked up some programs at TCC and saw one that really interested me and I went for it, but I love it, so it was good.
4: Yeah, that's awesome.
6: Uh, my name is Shaylee Walls um I specialize in OMFS uh basically their flaps so oral maxillofacial surgery so basically what they do is the patient has cancer in their mandible and they take the they cut the part out that has cancer and then they reconstruct the (coughs) the mandible with um the patient's fibula wow so
4: yeah
6: that's what I specialize in and then why I chose to be a surgical, like it's basically the same as Carla. I was just researching on the TCC website and I
4: found that and that was pretty much it. My first question is, um, since we are talking about uh, the coronavirus pandemic, um, so you started clinicals in the fall and then um, you picked it back up in the spring and uh, obviously, when that happened, um, there were going to be some differences in uh, how you got into clinical and how you got um, prepared for your day and everything. Um, what were some differences that uh, you can remember from uh, pre-COVID? Like, you no? Know, can you just talk about that a little bit?
5: Yeah, so um, we were not students during the pandemic. So they cut us off, I think around March 6th. And um, then we started working at our hospital. So we didn't do clinicals as students, but notable like differences, I would say um, like wearing the masks all day, um, the 21 minutes they do at Harris before and after, um, if the patient is COVID
6: positive, um, another thing is like when we're doing surgery on a COVID positive patient, we have to wear a lot more PPE. Um, so we had to wear, technically I had to wear three layers. Um, so I would wear my scrubs and then we would wear like paper scrubs over those. And then we would wear our gown over that. So oh we'd wear like three layers of clothes and it got really hot.
4: Wow. But, um,
6: <laughs> then we had to wear two shoe covers, two pairs of gloves, obviously. Uh and then two hat covers or hair covers, whatever you want to call So um, just a lot of PPE.
4: The pandemic, I know, is really scary for everyone at the beginning, um, just kind of making the adjustment to it. Um, Did it affect your perspective of your career choice at all?
5: To me, it was just like, okay, you decided to do this. They're patients. That's what you're there for, to help them. Like, we gotta do it. It's gotta be done. You know,
6: like right. this
3: is
5: this was my career choice. I'm not going to back down because of COVID or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it definitely was scary. Just like Carla said, like we chose to be in the healthcare uh, field for
6: a reason, and that's because we want to help people. Um, and so, yeah, it was scary. But at the same time, we're called to help people, and that's what we're there to do. And so, um, I don't think it made me question my build at all like I love what I do and being able to help people in any way that I can is what I'm gonna do so I don't think it made me question it I feel like it made me like more thankful for my job and more thankful for those that are on the front lines like helping others um, because people don't have to do this they choose to um so yeah I think it didn't make me question anything I think it just made me more thankful for what I do
4: like you said with your uh PPE shortages, Um, did it kind of help you, or I mean, did it, um, change your perspective on things that you may have taken for granted in, um, like in the past, did you value anything a little bit more or, um, you know, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So just, I mean,
5: just not having to wear masks constantly, you know, um, that's always, I mean it's nice not having to have something on your face all day
1: yeah <laughs> that's,
5: that's a of a break. but I think
6: of the break. Bad, I think that's it yeah um I think just people not have being able to have loved ones in the room with them like after they have surgery or like they're in the ER or they just had a baby like and the dad's not able to be with them or like things like that like not being able to have loved ones in there with them like I feel like that's something I take for granted and I feel like that's something that a lot of people take for granted um, especially just being in this pandemic and going through it like I mean the only people that you really want there when you're in the hospital is people that love you and so I know that the healthcare workers have come you know a long ways in like
4: making sure that those people feel loved and stuff. So we did have uh, cancellation of elective surgeries and, uh, during like the peak of the pandemic, um, did that affect your choice of your specialty or, um, do you feel like you were able to experience, um, all the fields that you were interested in or do you feel like you missed out on anything? Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Um, It
5: definitely did rob us of a lot of um, really cool surgeries and all that.
6: Um,
5: I don't think I did um, hearts at all. I don't know if us as students are allowed to do hearts or whatever. I think so, but um, I didn't get to go into a heart room and do, like, open hearts and all that, or at least observe that. Um, Other than that, though, um, I feel like by the time – that our school got cut off, our clinicals got cut off. Um, I feel that I had gotten a little bit of everything. Um, so it wasn't that bad, but yeah, we definitely did get robbed of a lot of surgeries and learning experiences because of COVID.
6: I feel like, cause I mean, we had pretty much like a semester and a half of clinicals and then like the last six to eight weeks of school, were basically when we couldn't go back
4: to school, um, But it also gave us a lot of study time for our tests. So. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah.
6: That was a bonus. But, yes. Yeah. But I do feel like having that experience and being in the hospital right before you start your job, like not being in the hospital or not being in the OR for eight weeks um, before you get hired is kind of scary going back because it's almost like starting all over again. So um, I think just that, like, not having that experience and, like, and um, the consistency of being in the OR and then starting your job
5: is scary. I ended scrubbing in March and I started back scrubbing like August 20th. Okay. So that's a good five months of not okay. scrubbing. I have some friends that just now started scrubbing mm-hmm. or just mm-hmm. got jobs. Um, so it, it really did affect us in that way. Yeah. We really did kind of like start from scratch you remember the basics
4: right yeah but
5: it, it is like like the the steps you know uh-huh. like being able to anticipate um all those little steps that we have learned I know I probably forgot a lot of them during that time
4: yeah, yeah. Oh, like
5: yeah. I did even with the eight weeks that I was
6: out so. <laughs> Thankfully, yeah. though, when you start your job, you have a preceptor and you're on orientation for, good like six months before you're on your own, but mm-hmm. it's still scary going back after not being in the
4: OR for a while. Yeah. Yeah. What skills do you feel like helped you succeed as a student, and um, what advice do you have for uh, future CSTs and uh, future students in the program or, um, you know, graduates that are about to go through and... Um, get out into the real world um so I feel like
6: taking notes is huge I actually when I was on orientation at the very beginning and I didn't know what I was familiar with the surgery that I was doing I would keep glove wra- glove wrappers and I would write on them during surgery like just little things like details about the surgery um that I maybe necessarily wouldn't remember when I did it again but uh, that I could look back on and I would ask my nurse to take a picture of it and like send it to me um, so that and I feel like another thing is asking questions um, I feel like that's huge don't ever assume that it's that's how it's done always ask questions um, I feel like even now like surgeries that I'm sometimes familiar with like I want to make sure with the surgeon that this is what he's going to use or if he needs anything specifically for that surgery that maybe he didn't use before um, just asking questions um, and I think another thing that's easy to forget is, like, putting the patient first um, and their needs first. I feel like some people get complacent and lazy with that, and they kind of forget about it,
5: um, and so just always putting the patient first and their needs first. Um, I would add one more thing, like, for me, um, just to stay calm. You know, even if, yeah. <laughs> if
4: everything's
5: going down the drain or whatever, just stay calm and that that helps so much I've been in cases where I'm like oh my gosh I don't know what I'm doing or I just yeah it was just right. a lot going on and I was I was really close to having a meltdown I'm not even kidding oh <laughs> and no and I was just like Carla calm down this be over <laughs> calm down
4: yeah <laughs> and
5: that yeah. really helped me through it I just stayed calm acted like everything was fine I'm gonna get through with it and it was fine so that's
4: um a lot of very valuable information that I'm definitely going to take with me cuz I've definitely had some um some questionable moments that you know I feel like I'm about to freak out already as a student um yeah. but yeah I just try to yeah try to just get through it and do one take one thing at a time That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your input and thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Um, You're welcome.
0: I hope that you enjoyed that episode one from Macy, Kimberly, and Caroline. We are really proud of them and think that they did a great job. Thank you again to Brandy, for being interviewed, as well as to Shaylee and Carla for their contributions to this episode. So Sneak Peek Season two, 4, Episode 2, is going to be a history of surgical technology featuring Stephanie, Tara, and Deanna. So if you would like more information, you can please visit our Instagram page at TCC Tech. We also have a Facebook page. All you have to look at is the Scrub Life podcast. And for notes on this episode, as well as future episodes, to include references, please visit our webpage at thescrublifepodcast.wordpress.com. My name is Chris Blevins. I'm the program director, and we appreciate your support of not only our program, but our incredible students. See you next time.